the mind-body problem actually consists of a whole bunch of different problems. As I, I mentioned before, it consists of consciousness and free will and the problem of the self, uh, morality and ethics, the quest to find, you know, what is a good life anyway? Uh, it's the meaning of life, but it also encompasses uh, uh, and and this can be problematic. It, it encompasses uh, sexuality um, and our confusion over that. Um, it encompasses uh, mental illness. It encompasses just our, our, our efforts to try to figure out how we should live our life, lives. What, what choices should we make uh, to, uh, to make ourselves uh, happy? So in a way, every life is a mind-body problem. Hello and welcome back. If you're returning to the uh, to the podcast, and uh, welcome if this is your first time. My name is John Price. I'm the host of the Sacred Speaks, and this is a uh, this is an important ritual. So I'm excited today to bring you another participant, and I don't have all that much to go into, so we'll just jump in. Uh, I would do want to say thank you for anybody who came out to the show, uh, the one I played with Rodney Waters at uh, the Young Center on the 16th of February. We're talking about what we're going to do with the recording, and uh, I know that we're going to do a studio recording of that, but this, um, it was a lot of fun. We got we got a good live recording, and it may come out on the podcast. It, it may go on the website, uh, but if you're looking for any information on this project, look up thesacredspeaks.com, T-H-E-S-A-C-R-E-D-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. So for today's participant... It is John Horgan, and I'll introduce you to him. Uh, first things first, you can get him at johnhorgan.org, J-O-H-N-H-O-R-G-A-N.org. I'll read a bit of his bio. John Horgan is a science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. A former senior writer at Scientific American from 1986 to 1997, he's also written for the New York Times, National Geographic, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Slate, and other publications. He writes the Crosscheck blog for Scientific American and produces mind-body problems for the online talk show bloggingheads.tv. He tweets at, at Horganism. Horgan's most recent book, Mind-Body Problems, Science, Subjectivity, and Who We Really Are, takes a radical new approach to the deepest and oldest of all mysteries, the mind-body problem. Published in September of 2018, it is available for free online at mindbodyproblems, with an S, M-I-N-D-B-O-D-Y-P-R-O-B-L-E-M-S dot com, for $5 as an Amazon ebook and $15 as a paperback. Horgan's first book was The End of Science, Facing the Limits of Science in the Twilight of the Scientific Age, 
which was republished with a new preface in 2015 by Basic Books. Originally published in 1996, it became a U.S. bestseller and was translated into 13 languages. Horgan's other books include The Undiscovered Mind, How the Human Brain Defies Replication, Medication, and Explanation, 1999, Rational Mysticism, Spirituality Meets Science and the Search for Enlightenment, 2003, and The End of War, published in paperback in 2014. Uh, Horgan's publications have received international coverage. He's been interviewed hundreds, hundreds of times for print, radio, television, media, including the Lair News Hour, Charlie Rose, and the National Public Radio Science Friday. He's lectured at dozens of institutions in North America and Europe, including MIT, Caltech, Princeton, Dartmouth, McGill, the University of Amsterdam, and England's National Physical Laboratory. He's received many awards, and uh, he's an all-around fantastic person, at least I think so. Uh, again, get him at johntorgan.org or look up mindbodyproblems.com. And that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. We, we venture into a couple other topics, but primarily we look at his most recent work in Mind Body Problems. I, uh, I was loving on John quite a bit through this conversation, so... Uh, I feel a bit amorous with him. <laughs> uh, please go check out the book. It's, if you're interested in these kinds of uh, philosophical, scientific, psychological, religious questions about uh, who we are and, and what we are, um, he, does a, he takes a really good and new approach at it. And um, his writing is funny, uh, enlightening. Uh, he's sharp, and he's extremely... Um, well-read, so he's, he's been around the block. Uh, he sa- as he says, he's been doing this for about 35 years, talking to people who are asking some really important questions about reality. And uh, again, I just really enjoyed speaking with him. Um, John, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm grateful. And we also have talked about doing a more lengthy conversation, which is crazy considering this one's an hour and a half, um, about all his books. So I'm going to read all of his books and then... Uh, and kind of jump into uh, to the the whole thing. Um, so the the band you're hearing to today on this episode uh, is, is the Death Ray Davies. And um, if you've been paying attention to the podcast, you'll learn that I'm using a lot of folks that I used to play with years ago. And uh, while they don't play anymore, um, they sure were fun to see back in the day. John talked about uh, the '60s, and this is a band that kind of reminds me of the '60s. So I played. The um, the first song, and I'm going to close all this stuff. Holy moly. Um, the first song was uh, uh, was Gone Against the Tide. And uh, the second song is The Medication. And check them out on iTunes. There'll be a link on this uh, page, on either iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you find it, that will link to those records I, uh, I recommend the band, as I recommend all these bands. What else? Uh, oh, the theme music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And, um, and I think that's it. So without, uh, without any further uh, conversation, I will introduce you to the conversation that John and I had last week and say thank you for showing up and listening and um, pass it along. I, mean, I guess the, the the real way you can support this podcast is just to send it out to uh, as many people as you can. If you like it, recommend it. Uh, and uh, and I'm grateful for you stopping in. 
So we'll leave it there. Look, so we're, you know, we're spending time getting to know each other. I can tell we're, um, we're going to have a lot of dead space in here, right? It's going to be uh, really without a ton of conversation. <laughs> Um, for, for those of you joining us, we, we, I, I've been loving on John for a while, so um, I, I'm really happy to, um, uh, that you've arranged the time, John. I, I'm, I'm grateful. I've, uh, as I said earlier, I've ordered all your books. I'm ready to dive in. But today we're going to really spend a lot of time focusing on this cool project that you did called The Mind-Body Problems, which is available online and um i won't do much explaining i'll let you do that but uh sure. i'm just uh, full of gratitude i'm excited to get to know you in this way and uh and i'm happy that you've uh, opened yourself up to have us uh you know bend your mind a little bit it's my pleasure john it's good to be here good well let's um i kind of you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a psychotherapist i want to start at the beginning uh, as early as you'll go um I, I'm curious, you know, without going into all the earlier books, and of course not keeping from them early either. We'll go in a deeper dive the next time we talk. Um, but I, I am fascinated by this process, and I wonder if if you would kind of start with explaining what the mind-body problems your your project is. Yeah. Then talking about, of course, mind-body problems, and then why you're so interested in that in the first place. It's a lot of questions. Sure. Um, well, the mind-body problem, I guess I got interested in it as a professional science writer in the late 1980s. That's when um, Francis Crick and this young sidekick of his, uh, Christoph Koch, started saying that consciousness was something that could be explained by science. Consciousness had really been... Um, something for philosophers to debate for millennia really and they hadn't uh, they, they hadn't made much progress and crick was saying um we can solve this now we can figure out how the brain generates conscious states and we can solve this uh this ancient problem um and some people equate the problem of consciousness with the mind-body problem but um the mind-body problem, the way I understand it, and of course everybody has different uh, meanings for these terms, but the way I, I understand it, it is about consciousness, but it's also about the self. It's about how we construct a, a personal identity. It's about free will, which is a huge obsession of mine. It's about the question of morality. I mean, these are all problems that become problems if you assume that we're basically matter that we're physical stuff just like this laptop here in front of me and the table and so how does matter generate conscious states how do you get free will how do you get morality how do you get meaning how do you get matter that worries about the meaning of its own existence um so all that is the mind-body problem and as I said, I started writing about it for Scientific American in the late 80s because there, there was this uh, claim by, uh, by Crick that the problem could be solved. And I said, when I started writing about it, I realized, actually, I've been thinking about this stuff forever, since I was a little kid. 
I mean, the problem, because the mind-body problem um, is really the problem of what we are. What does it mean to be human? Should we think of ourselves just as matter, as um, you know, a bunch of uh, neurotransmitters, uh, a bundle of genes, which is what Richard Dawkins and people like that uh, would say, as a uh, software program, as nodes in a cosmic infinite mind. I mean, there are all these different conceptions of the mind-body problem. There are all these different answers to the question of, of what we what we really are. And um, I started, you know, as I started writing about consciousness, I, I began to realize that, uh, shit, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that I, pretty much as soon as I became conscious as a child, um, I was worried about because I was sort of a neurotic, anxious child, and I felt a little bit alienated from the world, and I wondered how I fit in. Um, so, and then I, you know, I, I, I got a little older and I took psychedelics and then I really became uh, alienated and, and, and started wondering what the hell I am and what is existence anyway. Um, but going back to the late 80s, I started writing articles about consciousness, the quest to solve consciousness. And uh, that became a big part of my first book, The End of Science, in which I talked about the possibility of solving the problem of consciousness, which is a big part of the uh, mind-body problem. And uh, it was that was a theme of um, uh, my next book, The Undiscovered Mind of Rational Mysticism, which, which uh, came out in, uh, this is all in the 1990s. I couldn't get it out of my system. I kept writing about the mind-body problem, talking to scientists and philosophers about it, uh, talking also to theologians, people who came at it from a spiritual tradition, because of course, religion has been all over the, the mind-body problem and the question of what we are uh, forever. That was our main source of answers for, you know, the, for most of human history. Um, and just a few years ago, uh, I started going to all these conferences at both at Columbia and especially at NYU. I live in Hoboken, so all I have to do is cross the, the Hudson River to go to these fantastic conferences um, on the mind-body problem and and uh, related questions. And I'd also been, you know, keeping up with the literature on uh, neuroscience and cognitive uh, psychology and philosophy of mind. Uh, sort of tracking where the field was going, I had expected there to be gradual convergence on one approach to understanding consciousness and therefore understanding the mind-body problem. And just a few years ago, I realized that that wasn't happening. It was quite the opposite. Um, the, the, the phrase that I coined to describe this is a paradigm explosion that, that there normal, healthy, maturing fields, you get a convergence of a lot of the participants toward a common approach. Not, not a, a specific answer, but a, um, a way of getting answers that will make sense. And I thought that hardcore neuroscience would provide that. This was the approach recommended by Francis Crick back in the late 80s and early 90s. Instead, everything became wide open. You, you had uh, you had quantum theories of consciousness. You had you had um, information theory 
uh, models of consciousness. Buddhism suddenly was becoming really popular. Uh, psychedelic research, uh, which is legal now, it's being practiced across the United States. Um, people were being inspired by those experiments to comment on the nature of, of mind in the universe. And, um, and I realized that things were just totally chaotic and which is wonderful for a science journalist. There was just so much material uh, to write about. And so I decided to write yet another book um, specifically specifically focused on the mind-body problem and, um, and trying to express some of these initially vague ideas I had about whether it can be solved once and for all. Mm-hmm. So I think so, that's an answer to your question. That's an answer. <laughs> and I gotta, I gotta read, I gotta find it. My favorite sentence. Um, <laughs> my, <laughs> it's one of my favorite sentences in your book. This book presents my subjective views of my subjects, subjective views of subjectivity. It's subjectivity all the way down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm grateful for that. That's such a cool because you got you got into the personalities. You know, you're asking one of these core questions about how does our how does our particular worldview affect how we interpret and experience the world, and and I find that to be outside of the reductive approach so much so that it becomes a very rich read, and and you get the kind of human condition that's also permeating through these you know, deep intellectual and scientific narratives. Yeah, well, so what the conceit of the book, um, well, I'll just tell you one, one experience that I had that, that gave me the, the, the idea for uh, mind-body problems, this, this book that I ended up writing. I, I went to this workshop with this guy, Christoph Koch, who is the sidekick of Francis Crick, who uh, is now one of the most prominent neuroscientists in the world. And he was a leader in the materialist approach to understanding consciousness, mm-hmm. trying to find the, what's called the neural correlates of consciousness. And I, I've interviewed him many times over the years. And we're I, I, I think it's fair to say we're friends. Uh, we've been through a lot of twists and turns of our careers. He's a real big shot now. He, he's the head of this $100 million a year um, uh, brain institute in Seattle. And um, I, I was at a workshop at NYU on something called integrated information theory. And uh, Koch, is a, he didn't invent it, but he is a major um, proponent of it. And uh, it it's, it's kind of, the details are sort of technical, but its implications are, are really profound. Um, it implies that consciousness is a property of any kind of matter that is, um, has parts that are uh, transmitting information back and forth from each other. A single proton, according to this theory, um, is processing a little bit of information between its quarks. And so a single proton has a little spark of consciousness in it. That's the implication of this, uh, of this theory. And, and that means that everything is conscious. The entire universe is conscious. So I thought, what the hell? By the way, is it okay if I swear? I, I tend yeah, to swear course. when I get I do too. <laughs> okay. So I thought, what the fuck? Uh, I thought... 
this guy has gone off the deep end. He's <laughs> he's not, obviously gone through an identity crisis. He's gone totally woo, and I, I you know I was baffled that uh, such a smart, um, brilliant scientist and really hard nosed and tough um, was advocating what I found to be a ridiculous uh, theory. It's 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 implying panpsychism. This old idea that consciousness pervades everything and and then i and then i found out that um he'd actually he had gone through a, an identity crisis a really profound identity crisis during which he lost his catholic faith conscious had been a catholic for most of his life his marriage had broken up and he just like suddenly started worrying about the the meaning of life he also turned uh, he turned 50 and so i thought um, okay, well, that's the uh, that's the reason why he's glommed onto this this silly theory. And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. The reason I'm resistant to the theory is because I'm so committed to the idea of the end of science, which is the theme of my first book. That all the really big discoveries in science have been made. So I've got my personal subjective reasons for rejecting this theory, just as Koch has his personal subjective reasons for embracing it. And then I thought, well, isn't that true of all of us? Isn't that don't we all um, find certain theories attractive and others unconvincing or even repulsive because of the things that have happened to us, because of who we are. And then I realized that, you know, what, what science is trying to do and philosophy as well is to come up with a, is to get rid of the subjective when we're trying to understand the mind body problem, the problem of who we really are. And I thought, um, and you know, this is all sort of happening in the weeks after I saw Koch at this, at this workshop. I thought, well, maybe that's a mistake. Maybe it's a mistake to try to eliminate the subjective from our understanding of ourselves because we are subjective creatures. That's fundamental to who we are. And, um, and then I thought the way to explore this theme would be to do these case studies of individuals like Koch and others who um, had had gone through very traumatic or difficult experiences um, that had some kind of effect on their self-conception and on their professional views of the mind-body problem. And so then after that, it was just a matter of lining up uh, people who had interesting ideas about consciousness and free will and the nature of the self, human nature, all this kind of stuff, and um, also had dramatic life histories and also were willing to talk to me about it. Uh, and I eventually found nine people who were willing to, to tell me about their innermost secrets um, you know, their, their identity crises uh, triggered by mental illness and alcoholism and, and uh, sexual confusion, uh, the, the most private parts of their uh, private lives, and would talk about the possible connections of that personal stuff with their professional uh, perspective. And, uh, and I got a book out of it. And you did it. 
and it's pre- I'll just say it's presented in such a wonderful form where you have these uh, uh, little inroads to previous articles you've written, and you've got the recordings that are laid out. So it it it, it really promotes the kind of uh, I don't know it promotes a degree of curiosity, but it also uh, stimulates curiosity by kind of helping you actually be an active participant in diving down some of these roads if you uh, if you want to. So, you know, kudos to that. I think it was really well done. Thank you. Uh, so uh, you've, uh, as, the, as I was hearing you talk about all these differences, one of the things in your personality that really stands out is this, uh, you know, proclamation of being a skeptic. And I'm interested how that kind of identity how how you relate to that part of yourself and how that fuels your capacity to really kind of push at and, you know, ping everybody in different ways. I guess I like to think, uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I, if I'm a skeptic going way back to the beginning of my life or it's something I acquired after I became a science journalist when you, you know, you need to be skeptical um, at least, that's always been my conception of uh, journalists. You don't really trust uh, anybody. You have to verify everything. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a professional aspect of my uh, skepticism, but it's personal as well. I sort of, I, I hate the, th- the thought that I'm fooling myself. And, um, and I, I fool myself quite often, actually. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, especially it's, it's, like, it's hard for me to see it in the moment. I can look back in my life and see lots of periods of gross delusion. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I try to, I, I think I'm, you know, if I have a, a philosophical position, it is, you know, so I, I have friends who were, they, you know, they're, I don't know, libertarian or they're progressive socialist or they're Buddhist or whatever. And I, I think skepticism is my sort of baseline uh, philosophy. And I think of it almost as a kind of spiritual path. In fact, it is my spiritual path. Uh, because for me, spirituality is a process of, um, I don't know, elimination, subtraction. I think there's the world out there. And um, it's overwhelming. It's it's this fantastic mystery, which is terrifying and and wonderful, and and all these things. And we normally can't see it. I can't see it because beliefs and concepts uh, get in the way. And for me, skepticism is a way, and, and those beliefs and concepts are necessary to live, but um, to function, but they also occlude our vision. And so for me, skepticism is, a, is a, an attempt to kind of pare back all that stuff that's constantly accumulating in front of me and, and preventing me from seeing what's really going on. So that's kind of a pretentious way of... of uh, Defending my skepticism, I, you know, I, I, some friends, colleagues get frustrated because they just think I'm a knee-jerk skeptic toward everything, but it's, um, 
and and I you know I guess it comes across that way sometimes, but for me it's it's I can't help it, and it's because of this feeling I have that my own mind is conspiring against me to keep me from seeing what's really going on. God, that's great. So you you not only do you doubt you doubt your doubt too. Uh, yeah. Does that ever make you a little crazy? I'm I'm with this. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, and it means that. Uh, you know, the ground is always shifting under my feet, um, but it's also exhilarating. Yeah. Uh, I feel as though uh, skepticism, it, you know, when it's sort of working for me, it's, um, it's liberating. It, it lets me see, uh, it lets me see more things than I would if I were committed to one kind of path or uh, one sort of philosophy or scientific scientific outlook. But yeah, the price you pay is always being a little anxious because there's nothing to hold on to. Yeah. You're, fr you're friends with your existential angst. <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that's a good spiritual path. I get that. Um, so while we're talking about identities, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the journalist part of you and the science part of you and you know which one comes first which one kind of got you into all this and then i'll have more questions <laughs> sure um i you know i i feel lucky that so as i mentioned before i i was this sort of um self-doubting anxious uh, kid then became th that as a uh, teenager, as a young person, and uh, you know I was a hippie when I was young. I I didn't go to college uh, for a long time. I didn't graduate until my late twenties, and I you know I was actually an itinerant bum, traveling around the country uh, for quite a while, and um, you know trying to sort of gather experiences. And then I wanted to settle down. I wanted to make a living. I had a, a notion of being a writer when I was younger. Um, and then I thought it wasn't in the cards for me to become a, a fiction writer. And so journalism appealed to me. I discovered science journalism because I'd always been interested in science. And, um, and so journalism is, it's just turned out to be a fantastic career for me because uh, you're, you're paid to be curious, to go out in the world and find other people who, are, who have been thinking hard about stuff and you talk to them and you share ideas. And uh, you know, I'm constantly learning new things. And, um, and at this point, you know, I've been a science writer for 35 years now. And, um, and at this point, I, there's really no difference between my journalistic self and my personal self. It's not like I, I sort of wake up in the morning and I'm, you know, this one person, and then I put on my science writer hat and I'm, I'm that person. And I'm a, I'm a professor now too. I also teach at this engineering school right up the road from me. Um, and that also, there, I mean, I, it's taken me a long time to reach this point, but all those parts of me are, are pretty integrated, and it's all just sort of trying to figure shit out. You know, and then I've okay. I've got some ideas. I I think I've I've just come to reached a conclusion that today anyway I I um, am willing to share with you. And so I write about it on my Scientific American blog. I you know I, I put a lot of those thoughts into my um, 
into my uh, into this book, the mind body mind body problems. Um, so I'm not sure if this answers your question, but it's 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 like these different identities um, are all of a piece now. So, uh, so it, it, just to address a curiosity there, what classes do you teach there? What are your I yeah, I'm a jack of all trades. So because um, <laughs> I, I, I only have a master's and from journalism school, so I'm a, I'm an oddball academic, and I only got this job 15 years ago because I needed the money, to be honest. And then I turned out, and I was a terrible teacher at first because I was just so nervous. I didn't know what to do, and nobody told me what to do. It just threw me into this classroom, and this is at an engineering school, Stevens Institute of Technology, uh, here in Hoboken, and. Um, and then I, I gradually saw the job as just, here are these young people, they're pretty ignorant. <laughs> and you know they, they think they know some stuff, but they really don't know anything. And so it's my job to make them realize that they really know nothing. And, and to, to tell them I also know very little, but maybe a little more than they do. And I try to, I try to share it with them. Uh, so I teach... Um, this semester, I'm teaching uh, freshman humanities classes, which means reading some stuff, you know, reading a little, I don't know, Plato, and uh, and I, I, I give them some of my favorite uh, scientific papers, a paper by Alan Turing and and um, uh, Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bat? And we talk about it, and then I make them write about it, and, and uh, that is the feeling I have when I'm teaching them it's very similar to what I have when I'm uh, writing uh, for my Scientific American blog and when I'm just talking to colleagues. Again, just sort of, I've been thinking about this. Here's what I think. What do you think? That kind of that kind of stuff. Teaching has been wonderful for me. I really I really love it now. Well, yeah, and I, I teach a little bit. I think that um, I, I, this is not a massive insight, but it it was for me when I thought. Well, wow, a really good teacher needs to still be a student. And I think yeah. that that's something that just occurred to me like, oh, it's that like absolute thirst and curiosity to learn more cool shit and then talk about <laughs> it and <laughs> and see what turns other people on and what doesn't and you know, uh, uh, an eighth of your class is exuberantly ecstatic, you know, and the other uh, the other side is kind of, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but I yeah, that's, that's I mean, it. 15 years of teaching though, that gives you a ton of experience being in that space and, uh, and working through those ideas. Yeah. I, so the, what I realized eventually, you know, when I started out teaching, I thought there was a way to be a teacher and there are things that I should be teaching these kids, you know, they're paying all this money. And then, uh, I, I gradually decided that, um, the most important thing for me to do is to, talk about stuff that I actually care about, that I'm, that I'm obsessed with, that I'm passionate about. And, um, and, you know, even if we're reading, uh, I don't know, Plato or Descartes or something like that, um, put it in the terms that I understand and relate it to stuff that's happened to me in my life. You know, some of the things that I've written about, uh, for example. And, um, and if the students see that I'm excited by, the problem of consciousness. Some of them, it's never occurred to them to think about consciousness as something peculiar, as something mysterious that is 
deserving of, of uh, contemplation. And so there I am ranting about it. And some of them are like, Jesus Christ, get me out of here. I can't wait till this class is over. But a few of them are like, yeah, my mind is kind of weird if you think about it. And, um, you know, that's, it, this is an experience that you were just describing as well. It's if you can reach a few of those students and get them excited about this stuff and, um, and willing to listen to the ideas that you have, it's really so much fun. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the, a couple terms I want to dive into and get your take. Um, because I, as I've said a lot in this project on this podcast, that we use so many terms and just assume that other people understand what we mean when we say those terms. And a couple of them that we're talking about is materialism, consciousness, and science. And maybe we start there. Like, what's science? Yeah. Um, yeah, I try to define these terms for my students. Uh, I'd say that, well, you have to go back to the, the sort of beginning of human questioning. Um, you go back to, let's say, to you know Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, you have these smart people who are trying to figure out. They see the world as as all these unsolved mysteries, and they're trying to figure it out. And 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 um, the ancient Greeks are remarkable because they started thinking about the world uh, in that way as a mystery uh, to be solved. And um, and so they had all these questions and they had some answers for them. I see science as a method of addressing these questions in a way that you can actually arrive at answers that reasonable people can agree on. Um, and science is also, it's, it's looking for, I don't know, regularities in, in the structure of nature that can also give us some ability to predict what's going to happen in the future. And to, to do that, you have to pose your questions um, and have models that have specific uh, qualities. And so I distinguish that from philosophy and some of my philosophical friends don't like it when I define philosophy this way, but I see philosophy at this point in history as uh, concerned with questions that have no answers. Mm -hmm. um, they might in the future, and you know there have been some questions that looked to be entirely philosophical that then turned out to have answers that were scientifically uh, tractable, like uh, you know, how was the universe created? Um, so um, yeah, science, Science solves problems, and if the problems are unsolvable, then I think you'd have to say that it's that um, maybe those problems don't don't really fall in the realm of science. What do you think? What's your definition of science? I, I agree. I mean, I agree with the fact that I think it's a method. I think it's a process, and I think that we've been chiseling away at the most effective and parsimonious way of implementing that process on reality and uh, yeah but i think there's some element of measurement you know so so we're looking at some kind of objective way to measurement because because i think inborn in science is the is the need to communicate to others you know so we have to have these kind of 
modes of being that can can be um, can be articulated or, 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 or verified and then uh, produced to communicate that same pattern to somebody else. And and it's yeah. um, so, so so I think that's kind of a and that's part of the process, you know, and I think we could just define the scientific method. But it, it I, I think that measurement is is part of the the process. You know that the the religious scholar Houston Smith, who I interviewed for my book, um, Rational Mysticism, he said he was having this conversation. He was at MIT for a while, and he was having a conversation with a physicist, you know, a scientist. Uh, and the scientist said, and so Houston Smith is a, a theologian, philosopher, and and the scientist said the difference between uh, what I do and what you do. Houston Smith, is that uh, is that science counts and what you do does not count, and so he meant that in both senses of the meaning. <laughs> yeah. No, it was an insult. Yeah, absolutely. Insult. On the other hand, I, the the problem with with equating uh, science with sort of mathematical models is that um, you know I think of. Uh, I don't know, On the Origin of Species is one of the greatest works of science ever. And, um, and it's, it's not really a work of mathematics. It's, it's very plain uh, language um, that is describing this powerful process that seems to be responsible for lots of the features of life that we observe, uh, that we observe today. But yeah, in general, especially modern science, I'd say it counts. Yeah, I love. I, yeah, th there's. I, I got the double uh, double entendre. That was really uh, kind of a dig. <laughs> I, oh yeah. And, you know, and I think, um, and I hope I get this. It's Alison Gopnik. Is that right? I enjoyed her. Yes. Yeah. So I really related with what she was saying, and that I. I've worked with a lot of kids. I worked in childhood trauma for a long time. And so earlier when we were talking about attachment theory, I end up kind of leaning on um, the, develop, the development of our sensory system as an analogy for these kinds of questions, because essentially what that does is make the human being into this limiter. You know, we're kind of constantly filtering. And I think science is a communicatable means by which we can try to form and limit our environment and our reality into a way, into a means by which we can communicate to com communicate that to other people. And, and so, yeah. so I, and I liked her stuff and I don't want to jump too far ahead into that yet, but um, I, I think, you know, probably my definition of science would be the opposite of, uh, you know, Occam's razor. I, I think I, I, I tend to be pretty long winded, so I, I fail that test. But um, I, <laughs> <laughs> <Me too>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other um, the other and I, I know I said, John, I know I said we we'd save this, but, you know, fuck it. Let's just let's just kind of go where we go. Um, okay. While we're on the subject of science, I'm curious about the end of science, and if if you could maybe talk about what got you into that, and then we'll we'll go into consciousness a little bit later too. Sure. Um, so the end of science is that that was my first book. It came out when I was still a staff writer for Scientific American. Um, 
And it was inspired by claims of some very prominent scientists that their fields were on the verge of completion. So Stephen Hawking is probably the most famous. Yeah. Hawking in uh, The Brief History of Time, which came out in the late 1980s, predicted that physicists were on the verge of, uh, of uh, a final theory, a unified theory of physics, which would bring together quantum mechanics and relativity, which are now uh, these two separate things, and would possibly explain how the universe came to be uh, in the first place, not, you know, what happened before the Big Bang, what, what uh, made the Big Bang possible, um, and also would explain why the universe has this structure, which allows our existence, rather than some other structure. So this was just an incredibly ambitious uh, goal. And Hawking is saying, was saying uh, in the late 80s that maybe in the 90s or by the year 2000, it would all be wrapped up, which is incredible. And at this point in my career, I, you know, I had been a hippie acid head early on, and I, you know, I thought that that mysticism was the way to solve the answers of the universe. And then I, I didn't think that was going to happen anymore. And so science was the source of answers for me. And then here was this famous scientist saying, wow, it could be wrapped up. And Hawking had this famous phrase at the end of Brief History that, that with a unified theory, we could eventually know the mind of God. Now, he meant it ironically because Hawking is a hardcore atheist. It was kind of a joke. Hawking is a real joker. I, I tried to explain that in, in, in the end of science. Um, but still, it's just a fantastic claim. At the same time, Francis Crick was saying that maybe we would have a solution to consciousness pretty soon. This is all like in the early 90s by now. I talked to somebody, Ernst Mayer, who's one of the greatest evolutionary biologists in history, about this idea of completion. You know, do you think that biology in some sense might be already complete because of uh, the double helix and uh, evolutionary theory. And, and Mayer said, yeah, he said the framework is there. We're filling in the details now. So um, I, you know, there'd been inklings of this idea that science could end uh, before, but nobody had ever really put it together into this claim that science is ending. And so that was the book that I wrote. And, and I didn't say, and I ended up not saying it's, it's ending because we're about to solve these, these great mysteries. I ended up concluding that we've solved reality to the extent that we can solve it. Uh, that we've come up with the really deep insights into nature that we're capable of coming up with and that from here on in, and that's, that's um, you know, relativity, quantum mechanics, uh, natural selection, the double helix, um, and also just the basic material uh, paradigm for understanding nature. All that, all that is uh, in place, this basic map of uh, the world, and there aren't going to be any more great revolutions or paradigm shifts in the future, not real ones. There are going to be a lot of fake ones. Um, but, uh, but the science in the grand mode is over. That was my thesis.
Yeah. And it I, ended up getting fired from Scientific American. <laughs> I bet I bet people love that, man. <laughs> oh yeah. It caused a real it caused a real shitstorm. Which sure. was great. It was uh, it was a lot of fun and, and people are still constantly debating the the end of science. I'm still writing about it all these years later because uh, to my mind it looks even uh, more than ever like um, like uh, science in this certain grand mode um, giving us deep insights into into nature is over. Okay, so Q Q person saying, ah, John, come on, we're right on the verge. We've got singularity and AI and robotics are all all the rage, right? Where yeah. do you go there? Yeah. Um, so actually, my views have been modified a little. I was only talking about what you might call pure science. So just trying to understand nature, not applications of science. That would be artificial intelligence. It would be genetic engineering, uh, fusion energy, and all that kind of stuff. I'm actually pretty skeptical about applied science as well, but it's much harder to predict where it's going. Um, but some of the stuff, some of the claims, like the singularity I see as just foolish. It's like a, it's like a, a cult for people who think they're too smart to believe in God. And so they, you know, they, they start worshiping at the altar of artificial intelligence and, and uh, genetic engineering, and they make ridiculous claims. It's incredible to me that brilliant people uh, believe in the singularity when it, it, there's no basis for believing in it uh, if you actually know what's going on in neuroscience and, and uh, genetics and even, and even uh, artificial intelligence. But, but I will say the one modification in my view of the end of science relates to the mind-body problem. And it's that I don't think consciousness will ever be solved. I don't think we will have the answer to consciousness, the answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? What is a human? But, uh, but I'm excited by research on it because I think it's possible that there are languages we haven't even imagined yet for helping us understand ourselves in the same way that, you know, the invention of computers gave us a new way to understand ourselves. The discovery of genes and natural selection gave us new, new ways to understand ourselves. Uh, psychedelic drugs have given us deep insights into ourselves. And so I guess I have this more open-minded view of uh, the future of science, not as converging toward the correct answer to the problem, um, but giving us all these possibilities that actually might make life more exciting, that might give us more freedom to discover who we really are. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but appreciate your it almost seems religious. I mean, it's the kind of, you are, uh, uh, you're using the same language that people use about belief in God. You know, I can't believe these smart people are believing in this like deity that's like, you know, so now we have multiverses and singularity and all these kind of wild, wild, uh, and I'm talking way out of turn because I am not a physicist, but I, 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 what I do when I, when I look at these um, radical possibilities I try to see it through the framework of a religious lens, not to say that I'm seeing God, to say like, 
how have we human beings in our history made sense of mystery before? And how yeah. have we related to that mystery? And and what kind of stories have we told ourselves about that mystery? And then what we see is this kind of spiral pattern that keeps manifesting. And, and so we get like different angles at all these things. And for some reason, that that really turns us on as human beings because we keep we keep gnawing at the same bone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's um, you know, I think it's it's not just religion and science. It's also the arts. Yeah. And I think at some, at some point, all of these sort of converge. We're looking for we you know, we still want to know what are we yeah. and not only and and, you know, Going back to my definition of the mind-body problem, uh, I, I said that a way to put it in sort of common sense terms is um, it's just who are we? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not only who who we are, but who we can be and who should be. There's this who we can be is sort of the technical question of how can we modify ourselves um, and still be human? Uh, how far can we go with, I don't know, brain chips and genetic modification, uh, drugs that that alter our minds? Um, you know, there are these new technologies out there. Uh, there's a lot of hype about them, but some of them might actually uh, live up to the hype someday. But then there's also the question of what we should do. What should we become? There's the ethical dimension of the mind-body problem. A lot of people are, are afraid of the idea of radical modification. I mean, I have friends who are transhumanists and they say, bring it on, you know, yeah. I, I want to be able to change genders like that, you know, and, and, uh, and maybe boost my IQ by, by a hundred points. I want to see what that feels like. Um, and others find that terrifying. And especially when you think about the possibility that these technologies might be controlled by powerful individuals or groups that have their own agendas in mind that might not be so good for the rest of us. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, religion is is an answer to the question of who we are, who we can be, and who we should be. Uh, science tries to give us those answers as well, but also art, all the modes of imagination are constantly saying, okay, well, you think the world is this way, but look at this possibility. Maybe this is what we are, what we can be. Um, and as I said, I, I, I think, I, I guess I've shifted from pessimism about science to, to optimism in the sense that that the future, I don't know, the future, we, we've got so many problems we have to deal with. But I'm I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the possibilities that my children will see um, after I'm gone. Um, and and I you know my I'm an optimist in that I think we're going to overcome our problems with the help of technology and science and um, in ways that give ourselves give us more freedom. Freedom is a word I keep coming back to when I talk about science right now. There's a paradox in science because science, by telling us this is how the world is, in a way restricts our freedom to believe in all sorts of different things. Mm. And um, 
one of the great, going back to your question about skepticism, one of the great things about being a, a, a skeptic toward, it, toward everything and even toward scientific theories is that it does give you more freedom of belief, which I think is a good thing. I can't remember if it was, I've got a couple of, let me get this. Um, yeah, I think I got this from you. Uh, I'm going to say his name incorrectly. So if I did get it from you, correct me. Um, John Ioannidis. Ioannidis, yeah. Ioannidis. So I, I printed out a bunch of his um, his articles uh, when, I, when I heard you kind of referencing him. And... Um, I, I'm really liking what he's scientifically evaluating about science. Uh, yeah. You know, in part, my, my understanding is that he's saying how, uh, how, how incorrect, how often, you know, quote, quote, provable scientific facts are incorrect or later disproven. Yeah. And, right. You know, I, I think that if that doesn't turn anybody into a skeptic, I don't know what should. John Ioannidis is like a wrecking ball going through science, right? <laughs> And the thing is, I've met him, and he's just the nicest person. He's very mild-mannered, um, kind of a humble guy. But uh, you know, over the last 15 years or so, he has presented all this evidence that you know the the scientific literature. This is the gold standard, peer-reviewed uh, papers and and uh, and uh, journals that um, a majority of the results that are published are false. They're not corroborated by follow-up studies. And this has caused a huge crisis in science. And um, and yeah, it has fed my skepticism a little bit. It's You, you don't wanna be in the position though of, of becoming a total postmodernist right. and saying that science, you know, science is a bunch of bullshit, it's just another projection of power. Uh, it's really not any different from uh, religion because that's obviously not true. Science is, is is definitely our most powerful way of knowing the world and of then doing something that with that knowledge, ideally to improve our lives. Uh, and that there have been countless examples uh, of that. But um, yeah, my cause science is really going through an identity crisis right now, brought about in part because of the work of Ioannidis. It's wild stuff. Well, and I, I thought about uh, Jung defined uh, neurosis as one-sidedness. And so there's, you know, as soon as we, as soon as we, for example, if an individual, if an individual takes on the identity of a skeptic and it's, you know, blind skepticism, it becomes an ideology and you can't see the other, you know, you're not challenged by what would be called the shadow and then it'll, have its way with you. And that's my depth psych psychotherapist coming out there. But that's, I think globally, that's certainly happening. And I, and I, I can't help but think that part of it, the sociology of it is that groupthink sets in and we become kind of dumb in our, in our orientation because we, we don't, we don't allow for innovation and we don't like to change and we like routine and we like predictability. And when new things come off, we've had 10 years being this way and it's like, ah, fuck you. I don't want to change. And that's our, <laughs> that's our approach. And that, that I think makes me a skeptic, you know, cause I see that in myself, you know, when, when I get hit with new information, I'm like, ah, wait a second, you know, and then multiply that by 7 billion and you're going, okay, I get it. Why it takes a long time to change this stuff. 
right? Just well, there's a, well, part of being a, 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 a journalist skeptic is also asking questions like, um, what's the motive for somebody making these claims? And, uh, and so that's particularly important when you're looking at technologies like artificial intelligence, for example, or um, something I'm really worried about is uh, research on neurotechnologies. These are, for example, uh, brain chips that are embedded in people's brains that allow them to connect directly with computers and robotic arms and, and things like that. And they're, they're cool applications. You get totally paralyzed people who can control um, robotic arms so they can, they can, uh, excuse me, so they can, uh, themselves. Yeah. And, um, but, and, and so that sounds fine. You know, you're helping people who need sure. help, but, but the research is financed, um, in large part by the defense department, yeah. which is interested in, um, which is interested in creating bionic soldiers, you know? So, uh, you can't look at science as something that is is sort of pure uh, and um, just trying to figure out the world works, how the world works in ways that can enrich our lives, both intellectually and materially. We, we live in a world with powerful groups and and governments um, and individuals uh, that have their own interests in mind. And part of what I try to do as a science journalist is expose um, expose those agendas and point out when the, the science is susceptible to being, um, to being corrupted. Uh, so that's a whole nother dimension of, of uh, the skepticism, you know, looking at how science is embodied in the real world in which some people are, they're bad people out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I, I, when, when science becomes, um, you know, I, I really like talking about science as a process because it, you know, you see these headlines of like uh, science proves that fill in the blank. You know, it's like, ah, oh, shit, you know, you're OK. You've got a study and nobody belabors the point. You know, they don't go, well, who who did that come from and where did it come from and who's funding it and what's going on? And, you know, that's your job to really dive in deep and say, wait a second, you know, don't just put that shit out there and. Uh, you know, try to try to assert a particular agenda that you're not actually noting to the public, but that happens a lot. Yeah, well, so going back to, I think skepticism and the mind-body problem is particularly appropriate, and and uh, I'll I'll um, I'll try to give you uh, some examples of that. Uh, and this also goes back to. Um, the value of skepticism, um, that if you look at human history, you can see it as an attempt to answer the mind-body problem, an attempt to, to answer the question of who we really are. And so, you know, you had these religions come forward with these very powerful, persuasive uh, answers to that, that question. And, um, and then uh, you know, people start living their lives according to what the religions are saying, and there are some uh, good consequences of that. From you know, let's say Christianity and Judaism and and Islam and Buddhism, and there are some bad consequences. And um, the certainty that some people uh, have as a result of 
let's say a religious ideology can lead to genocide and uh, bloodshed, to terrible repression. Um, and it's not just religion that's, that, uh, that turns people into zealots of that kind. You've got um, pseudoscientific ideologies like uh, let's say Marxism, or, and some of my best friends are Marxists, but if you just look at the, the history of the 20th century, uh, Marx, Marxist zealotry has led to just terrible bloodshed um, and oppression. Social Darwinism, free market capitalism, all these ideologies have terrible consequences and all of them are based on assumptions about what we really are and what's good for us, all right? Um, and therefore, I see uh, open-mindedness and skepticism as um, healthy for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me that we should create a world in which people are encouraged to be open-minded uh, in their own search for, for answers to the question of what, you know, what makes for a good, meaningful life, and are also more tolerant of other people's um, choices about what constitutes uh, what constitute good answers, and and science itself, it seems to me, tells us that um, skepticism is warranted when it comes to the mind-body problem. So, for example, if you're talking about consciousness, um, there's the problem. I, I call it the problem of solipsism, that mm -hmm. which is just the idea that each of us is trapped in our own little bubble of consciousness. I know I'm conscious, uh, but I can't be sure that you're conscious, uh, let alone a dog or a cat or a, a bumblebee or an E. coli bacterium. Uh, this, is, this is something that's peculiar to the nature of, of consciousness. I think as long as that problem is unsolved, and I don't see any way that it can be solved, and I, I talk about this um, in my book, that means that we'll never have a clear-cut answer to the problem of consciousness. And so we have all these choices. And the choices that we make come down to a matter of taste, comes down to a matter of uh, aesthetics. Maybe you're a hardcore materialist. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in free will. So you have some kind of like ultra-Darwinian view of human nature, um, and maybe, you know, I've taken too much LSD when I was young, so I believe in God and that, you know, there's a cosmic minefield and when I die, I'm going to become part of the cosmic minefield. There's no way to know which of us is right or, or not. So just choose what makes you feel good, what makes life more meaningful to you. That's right. Well, I'm glad you're going into that because I, I think that's a perfect opportunity to dive in more to the book. And what I, what I like about what you're saying is that you know there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of really 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 smart people who argue with each other about what's what's right and wrong and good and bad and up and down and left and right and you know you get what what I think so great about what you've been doing is you're looking at biology and complexity theory and philosophy and child development and psychoanalysis and saying you know what do these various traditions um, assert. And, and, and the, with the underlying question that we can back into these things, because we can, I can say like, oh, I'm a, you know, a, a, a Darwinian. 
and 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 reverse engineer it and discover some of my fundamental beliefs and then i can say do i really believe that is that like a a truism or am i kind of being a lazy intellect you know and so by doing what you're doing you're you're showing that process so you had so many good stories in this book i i encourage anybody to get i mean literally if you search for mindbodyproblems.com right now with an s you can find this book and it is so good uh it includes the recordings it, it's just a it, it's a cool experiment and i um i'm appreciative of that because i'm surrounded by books all over the place so what stands out in that process you know what um when you started doing it you know what kind of took you deeper into it yeah um I don't know. It was that uh, so many of these, I mean, this, this is going to sound uh, trite perhaps, but you've got these great intellects that know a lot of stuff and uh, have very powerful uh, uh, skills in terms of using reason and, and uh, logic to construct arguments for a particular uh, view of the world. Um, but then it turns out that all of them are just also these struggling, wounded human beings who are just trying to figure stuff out, like everybody else in the world, and are struggling. And, um, and it, it also struck me that it's not only that we're all different and we're all entitled to to reach our own conclusions about what constitutes a good life what and you know what we are really it's also that we can change our minds and changing your mind in response to new experiences is um is is healthy uh so one of the more dramatic experiences that uh somebody underwent in in the book um uh happened to this guy named Stuart Kaufman, who was a complexity theorist. He was somebody I actually interviewed for my first book, The End of Science. So I've known him for like 25 years now. And um, so he is uh, an authority on actually a whole bunch of different fields. He's, a, he's an MD, he's a, he's a cell biologist, a complexity theorist. He knows a lot about physics. Um, he's just a really smart guy, training in, in philosophy. And he had one of the, the most terrible experiences that a person can have yeah. early in his life. Uh, he had a teenage daughter who, um, the details are a little complicated, but essentially she took her own life by lying down in the middle of a road uh, so that a car would run over her and, uh, and kill her. And, um, and Kaufman had a premonition of um, of this event. He, uh, a month before his daughter killed herself in, in this way, he actually had a vision of her walking down the same uh, stretch of road and being struck by a car. And um, so what do you do with an experience like that? It's the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. So Kaufman, um, he really didn't talk to anybody about this except for you know his his immediate family for a long time because he thought that this meant that psychic phenomena had to be real and that is just unacceptable 
in mainstream science. Um, but he uh, worked on different ideas um, that could stretch his own view of the world, uh, could stretch conventional physics to make a little bit of room for uh, the paranormal in it. And, um, you know, I described the ideas that he came up with in my book. The only reason he's talking about it now is because his wife, uh, the mother of his daughter, uh, had died. And so after that, she didn't want him talking about it in public while she was still alive, but he began talking about it uh, afterwards. And so he came up with this, with this, with a, a new view of physics that allows for um, ESP and possibly even precognition, a vision of the future. I find this, I find this, uh, I can't go there. Uh, you know, the paranormal, I've had some odd paranormal experiences myself, but um, the skeptic in me wins out. I'm, you know, I, the evidence doesn't look good enough, but I sort of felt that by the time I'd done talking to, to Stu about this, it didn't matter. I, so in my intellectual worldview now, compassion has a much bigger part than it used to have. Um, and I, I realized that a lot of, many, of many of our beliefs are come out of this kind of woundedness, uh, this kind of trauma. And, um, and so uh, I'm not saying that anything goes when it comes to our beliefs. I think that there are certain belief systems that are really destructive or so obviously wrong that they're just unhealthy. And one of the things I'm still struggling with is where to draw that line. Mm. Uh, but in the case of Stu Kaufman, absolutely. I just, I thought um, that it was courageous and a wonderful, beautiful thing for him to have come up with this new way of looking at the world that could help him make sense of what happened to his daughter. His stuff, when I was reading um, not only that uh, horrible tragedy, but his, um, his, his intellectual conclusions, I, I find to be really rich. Would you explain a little bit about what you learned from him? Yeah, basically, it's... Um, he's using quantum mechanics, which is often used to explain anomalous experiences in, in ways that sometimes for me are not that persuasive. But quantum mechanics says that there is some, you know, there is uncertainty and probability at the bottom of things, like woven into the fabric of, um, of reality. And uh, according to Kaufman, that can allow for um, what's sometimes called non-local uh, effects. So that means that, um, I mean, this has actually been demonstrated in the laboratory where you have uh, two particles that are uh, entangled, uh, which is uh, uh, a state that's described by a quantum equation, uh, equation initially, and then they fly off in different directions and they can fly to opposite sides of the universe or they can just fly a couple of uh, miles. And they're in this indeterminate uh, probabilistic state until you measure them. And then if you measure this particle over here, that instantaneously determines the state of the particle over here. And so um, 
Kaufman says that this non-local quantum effect uh, might provide a possible way of explaining um, something like precognition, the, the, these glimpses of the future, or even more plausibly, according to Kaufman, uh, are the seeming ability that we have at certain points to um, read the thoughts of other people, to intuit what other people are, uh, are thinking. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. That's a good one. Well, on, on that, within that thread, as you're chatting with these folks, did you notice any assumptions or belief systems that were really challenged and changed because of what they were talking about relating, related to their personal experiences? Any other things stand out? Yeah, um, well, in some cases, uh, the belief systems were um, were reinforced. Let me see. Who can I who can I talk about? Um, well, in terms of of your own own field, you're a Jungian. Uh, one person I interviewed, I devoted a chapter to my to in my book, is um, Ellen Sachs, mm -hmm. who is a um, a legal scholar. She was trained at Yale and uh, also went to graduate school at, uh, at Oxford. Really brilliant person. Ended up at, uh, at um, UCLA and uh, at UCLA Law School. And, um, and she uh, is schizophrenic or suffers from schizophrenia. Um, and which struck her uh, in her late teens, really hit her hard when she was an undergraduate at Yale. And, you know, she was completely psychotic and had to be hospitalized. I uh, had to go to the emergency room a few times um, and was given, um, was given a very bleak prognosis. Looked like possible institutionalization, never having a, a decent job, probably never having a romantic relationship. Um, and yet she is married. She's had a fantastic career as a legal scholar. And she credits it to, to medications to a certain extent, but even more to psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. uh, classic Freudian psychoanalysis, which she first underwent when she was at Oxford. And um, she, and uh, the, you know, as you know, Freudian psychoanalysis is held in very low esteem these days. It has really taken a beating over the last hundred years. Um, but, uh, but for Ellen Sachs, it provided the most meaningful way for her to understand um, what she has gone through. And, um, and, and it has helped her understand herself and, um, and create a good life for herself. And she, and you know, she's, and as I said, she's, uh, she's gotten married. She's had a very uh, rich and uh, rewarding life. And so the way I tried to make sense of this and the way that she's made sense of it is that um, mental illness is, it can be many different things. And, you know, so one way that modern science looks at it is just as, uh, you know, malfunctioning of the biochemistry of our brain. And we should understand it that way and we should treat it 
in that way. Mm-hmm. But that's a very impoverished way. That, that actually works for some people, but it doesn't work for many people. It didn't work for Ellen Sachs. Um, and the way I understand, so I, you know, I, I'm sort of a Freud skeptic myself, but I started seeing it as psychoanalysis as this story that is very powerful for helping us um, look into ourselves and create a kind of narrative of our ourselves that works for us, uh, that has healthy that has healthy outcomes, and that's basically what science and philosophy are doing as well. They're giving us these stories, and this goes back to what I was saying before about the about the. Um, about how we choose different scientific theories, uh, mind-body stories, that um, it's a matter of taste, it's a matter of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And that will always vary from person to person, depending on your temperament, your personality, uh, the culture in which you um, were were raised. So um, again, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question you, you asked me originally, but one way that I, you know, I look at at all these different theories that we have that that um, that help us understand ourselves is that is that they're really stories, uh, with all that implies stories which generate meaning, stories which are not the last word, which can never be the last word, and who we really are, but they can still be very powerful and do things for us. Well. I- there's, I'm going to ask you to say this man's name again because I can't recall it. Jim McLennan? Mc... Jim McClellan. Yeah, McClellan. One, of my, one of my best buddies. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny when you brought him in because, as you stated, he's a hardcore postmodernist. And, um, and I, I looked him up. I'm going to read his stuff. I think it's, it's fascinating. But what you're, you're doing is not you're not going too far into that postmodern camp um, but you're 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 bringing him into it you know you kind of brought his his perspective into it a little bit so i'm i'm realizing as we started getting into some of these specifics i think we need to be a little more universal for a second too and speak globally about what you know mind body problems really is and are you know so and maybe i'm i'm bringing him in here cuz i want to see how postmodernism kind of influences this dynamic between yourself and the questions and all, all the way these folks that you're interviewing make sense of their worlds. So for globally, right, what are, what are the mind-body problems that you saw through each of these folks? Um, I guess, yeah, speak generally about the process of the book, and then we'll, we'll get more specific. Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, so mind-body problems that I, I, came up with the idea of calling it problems with the nest um, because I, I realized that the mind-body problem um, actually consists of a whole bunch of different problems. As I, I mentioned before, it consists of consciousness and free will and the problem of the self, uh, morality and ethics, the quest to find you know what is a good life anyway. Uh, it's the meaning of life, but it also encompasses... Uh, uh, and and this can be problematic. It, it encompasses uh, sexuality, mm-hmm. um, 
and our confusion over that, um, it encompasses uh, mental illness. It encompasses just our, our, our efforts to try to figure out how we should live our life, lives, what, what choices should we make uh, to, uh, to make ourselves uh, happy. So in a way, every life is a mind-body problem. Every life is a different version of the mind-body problem. Every single person has to find his or her own uh, answer to all those different uh, questions. And this is actually a very postmodernist idea. Postmodernism, as I understand, is the idea that there are no answers to any of the questions that science poses and philosophy poses about life. There are all these, uh, there are no final answers. There are only sort of tentative answers, stories rather than uh, theories or final um, explanations. I've always thought that postmodernism was absurd. I confronted it in my first book, The End of Science. The premise of The End of Science is that we're actually figure, figuring out a lot of shit. And we've, you know, the, we've, we have the theory of the elements. Uh, we know the structure of uh, atoms and molecules. The, you know, the Big Bang theory, quantum mechanics, relativity. We've got all this stuff that is actually true about the world. Um, but I have this friend at at my school, an historian of science, who studied under Thomas Kuhn, who's kind of like the the godfather of postmodernism, and um, he's a hardcore postmodernist. He always says that all we have are stories that the Big Bang Theory, quantum mechanics, just stories, man. He's this old hippie also. <laughs> and uh, he says, it's, you know, this story, we're going to have better stories in the future. Just don't worry. He calls me a naive realist. And I am a realist, but I, I don't think I'm naive. But um, when it comes to the mind-body problem, I, I hated to admit this, but I think Jim is right, at that um, all we have are stories. And uh, it's actually foolish to think that we're, there will ever be a final story which explains us to ourselves, which says, no, we really are just quirks and electrons, mm. or we really are just a bag of genes uh, or a bunch of neurotransmitters and, uh, and neurons, or, you know, no, it's actually, those Buddhists really got it right, you know, 2,500 years ago, they, you know, that's, that's the final story. Um, so again, my book is an attempt to just to give a sort of a, uh, a taste, a sense of the incredible multiplicity of stories that are out there from which we can choose. And also to convince people that there are more stories coming just in the way that there are new stories constantly being, in, being invented because of scientific progress and because of the new technologies that we invent. So there are going to be new stories in the future. And we are, that means that um, for good or ill, we're, we're a work in progress. In a way to be human is to be a work in progress. That applies to us both as, as individuals. I mean, I'm still, very much this unsettled thing. I don't know what I'm going to be tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now, uh, but I'll be different than I am right now. I might take back everything that I'm blathering here, but also as a, uh, as a species, we're always unfinished. We're a work in progress. And 
isn't that a wonderful thing? Who would want there to be like a final destination where we sort of figuring everything out? That's the vision of paradise and heaven. And I understand why some people yearn for that. But, um, but that's a childish vision. And uh, it, isn't, it doesn't do justice to our enormous powers of regeneration and, uh, and creativity. That's what my current self thinks anyway. <laughs> that's a, yeah, I'll read it at the beginning of our, I do this little intro part at the beginning of each episode. And in your discussion page, you had a, a one paragraph that really <laughs> nails it. You know, you just kind of isolated. And I'll, I'll read that. Um, so everybody will kind of walk into this conversation having an idea of, uh, of that perspective, which I think makes so much sense to me be, and, and, and seems on some level oddly scientific in that what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I've got all these subjects and my, my perspective is to find out their various narratives and how they seek out measure, identify, articulate, communicate their understanding of what in the hell they think is going on in both themselves and their world. And they have a degree of groundedness in it and they can talk about it and talk to it and offer proof and validation. And so when you take that massive input and look at it and you go, well, shit, I can't, I can't lean one direction because that's good over there and that's good over there. And well, hell, maybe I just need to include this, you know, and I become a pluralist. And that's the, <laughs> that, that I think is the, um, I'm with you. I'm completely with you. I, I think oh. any, any view that, that begins to um, identify with the particular by its very nature excludes a large portion of reality. And, and yeah. so, and, and that I think is a mistake when, and, and we'll all do it. I'll do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it on Tuesday next week. But, um, but to, at least for that to be, that to me seems like a very religious perspective where you say like my religious orientation is one that looks at reality in this way and doesn't allow myself to become too fixed. Yeah. I, I and, uh, and there are political dimensions to this, you know, um, that, uh, I mean, I'm I'm really worried about the state of our democracy right now and where we're we're going. This this is a this is a dark pe uh, period for a lot of people. With good reason, we've got climate change looming over us. But the the you know I I actually I think that there are practical consequences of this pluralism that I'm advocating. And one is that the basic idea of democracy and of Human rights, you know, the Bill of Rights um, in our Constitution is is a really great idea. I mean, we've been we've violated it constantly from the very beginning of our government of our, our country, um, not granting the the basic rights to lots of people, uh, to slaves, obviously, but women and poor people. Um, but the idea is still there, and I think we're moving toward. Uh, that ideal will never reach it, but we are we are creating a world in which people have more choices in what to be. Mm -hmm. That the last chapter of my book is dedicated to uh, this wonderful person. I really 
I, I, I really fell in love with her by the time I finished interviewing her. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey was a very prominent economist who, whose name was Donald McCloskey until his mid-50s. He is married and had two kids and then suddenly decided that that he had actually been a woman all along. And after great difficulty, he was, uh, against his will, committed to a mental hospital twice before he was allowed to finally get uh, surgery to, um, to change him into a, into a, a her. Uh, we finally got it done. And, um, and it's just so remarkable that that can be done, mm-hmm. that 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 um, transformation, their crossing, as, as she puts it, uh, only happened because of changes in, in politics and social norms and in science and medicine that, uh, you know, made it physically possible for, for, um, for the surgery uh, to be done safely. I, I, you know, I see the, the sort of great human adventure as being this process of giving ourselves more and more choices in in what to be and then we can change our mind and try something else um and so i i hope that whatever we do in the future however we come out of this current period that it that we continue this process of sort of expanding the realm of the possible uh for ourselves john i love that you're going here because a lot of people are nervous to go here but I'm really compassionate to this conversation because on the other side of these words that we're sharing are people that are suffering and under the burden of questions like, what is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? What happens if I don't fit in any one of those boxes? How should I express myself? How am I free to be myself? And then you've got all this scientific, I don't know, uh, uh, quote truth in in quotations there, but about how you know evolution and biology are um, determine sex and gender and you know this it is such a a contentious and that puts it so mildly um, it's so charged right now people are flipping out uh, and I guess the thing I can see in that is that it's very scary to somebody's own identity. Um, uh, because it calls into question what what kind of assumptions have they made about their own identity that could be questioned, and that's really scary when we say, "Holy shit, could I, I maybe not be the person that I always thought I was?" And there's more fluidity to sexuality and even identity, um, and, and that's certainly what I do understand from the postmodern perspective. Is it kind of it 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 brings out the skeptic in us. It 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 says, hey, take a look at this stuff. And and yeah, it's difficult. And yeah, it brings up anxiety. And yeah, it's scary. But that's the point. Like that yeah. actually makes you into who you are. I think really you're not taking in these narratives that have been given you by somebody or some culture or some previous way of being that you've then you know, consumed blindly and just said, that's me. All right, I get that because I want to belong. It's really important to me to belong. And so I just do that. So, right. so I, you know, I get charged up because I, I think it's... Um, it's great to talk with somebody who, who speaks with all these folks that you do, and and you really move seamlessly into the political and the sociological discussions that I I think are so important for us to be having right now. So I'm glad you're bringing that up, as uh, as I know we need to start closing out, and I'm I'm 
I'm really glad we're, we're beginning to move into that space here as we finish. Yeah, I, I, and I just want to point out that Deirdre McCloskey is somebody whose views were are um, quite different from my own. She's sort of a libertarian, neoliberal, uh, conservative capitalist. You know, she thinks right. capitalism, <laughs> right? Everything is, and I, you know, I'm more. I'm an old hippie lefty. Yeah, and uh, and so, but just meeting her and admiring her in person and her work so much, I started questioning my own knee-jerk uh, socialism um, mm-hmm. and in a way that I think is healthy. I ended up sort of shifting back left after I met her. <laughs> in fact, I just wrote a piece on my blog about how we need to start taxing those goddamn billionaires at a much higher rate. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, but McCloskey, you know, beyond ideology, this is also a very compassionate person who ha- has uh, provided a role model for other people who are uncertain of their identity as, and has encouraged them to, uh, to explore new possibilities. And, you know, when my students are gloomy, I sometimes tell them that when I was their age, you know, growing up in the... Uh, in the uh, in the early '60s, it was still illegal in some states for for uh, blacks and whites to marry. For example, it was illegal to get an abortion in uh, in most states, um, and you know, women's rights were uh, were still uh, not exactly non-existent, but greatly uh, diminished compared to what they are um, today. So we're sort of haltingly moving in the right direction. And um, by having this vision of our own evolution of, of human existence as open-ended and moving toward all these possibilities that we can't even imagine yet, um, I'm hoping that, that that will actually have positive consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll see. Me too. Yeah. Well, on on this note, I'm wondering um, if you could speak for a second. Who who tends to critic? Who are your critics? Who, who like what 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 folks do you really piss off? Is the answer everybody, or what what happens there? I don't know. I'm 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 getting a little soft in my own age. I don't know. I nobody's really attacked me for this book. Um, I've become. One of the first people to read it and give me feedback on it was Deepak Chopra. And uh, and so uh, he wrote a little review of it, and I posted it at the end of my book. I I, I encourage people to uh, to respond to the book and, and critically in any way they like. And Chopra said, sort of nice job, John, and your tolerance is really nice and pluralism, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he's got his own view, which is this sort of very um, – Eastern mystical metaphysical view. He, he grew up in the transcendental meditation tradition, and so um, that's his thing. Yeah. And so he he, he thinks that uh, you know, he's still defending that, and he thinks that pluralism is fine, but some ways are better than others, mm-hmm. and his way is the best. Uh, so I've gotten you know I've gotten that kind of thing. I, as some materialists have said uh, similar things, and sort of sticking up for science, still trying to winnow down the possibilities and um and that i get that but so far i've just been delighted by 
I don't know. I guess maybe I wrote the book in a way that in, that encouraged people to see it as the beginning of a conversation, and people seem to have taken me at my word and haven't been offended. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm so far, I'm really thrilled at the responses. Good. Well, what are we leaving out? Is there any thread hanging out that uh, that you need to say as we close it up? I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm pretty happy with the ground oh, we've covered. Good. So am I. <laughs> John, I got to tell you, man, thank you so much. This is uh, what a gift, man. I, I'm, I'm really grateful to spend the time with you today. Me too. Thank yeah. you, John. You I really it, appreciate um, all the nice things you've said about me and, and your questions. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Wow.